Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's good to be with you all this morning. I appreciate all of you praying for our family last week as we went through um, sickness with Rosalie, and I um, um, appreciate all how you guys have supported us and cared for us, and Andrew bringing the word last week. Um, she's doing much better now, so we praise God for his grace, and we thank him for his mercy on, on her. And we come now, if you want to open up your copy of Scripture with me, to John chapter 15. And this morning we'll be bringing this great chapter of God's Word to a close this morning. And over the last couple weeks, we've been seeing um, this great chapter kind of unfold before our eyes. And it began with this great statement of our Lord as He proclaims Himself to be the true vine. <laughs> he said, I am the true vine. He proclaims himself to be this one who was true, and all those that are united to him by faith, vitally connected to this vine, will bear fruit and will abide in him and in his love. He's proclaimed himself to be, in many sense, the better Israel, the better Adam that failed to bring fruit. Christ is the true vine that indeed bears much fruit, and his people in him. And we've sort of seen over the last couple weeks these different relationships described. We've seen the relationship between us and Christ, that as we are connected to him, as we are abiding in him, that believers in Christ will bear much fruit. That as we, the branches, are connected to the true vine, we will indeed bear much fruit. So we've seen the relationship between us and Christ. We've seen our relationship to one another. In the previous verses, we saw this command to love one another, to lay down our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the faith. And what we will see this morning is our relationship, not between us and Christ, not between us and one another, but our relationship between us and the world the relationship between Christ's church and the unbelieving world. And what we're going to see this morning is that this relationship is not one of love and acceptance, but is one of hatred and persecution. As one Puritan described it, if love is the character of Christ and his kingdom, then hatred is is the character of Satan and his. And we're going to see in our passage this morning that Jesus, as a good teacher, as a good shepherd, is preparing his people and his disciples, and by implication, us, for what is ahead. He's preparing his disciples and he's preparing us for the persecution and the hatred that we will face in this world. But the reason that he does this is not so we will cower in fear or be afraid of what is to come. It is actually so that we might have confidence in his word and in his promises. And the ultimate promise that we'll see today is that Christ is the one that overcomes the world. And as we have faith in him, we have the promise that we too will overcome the hatred and persecution of this world. So I'm going to read our passage for us this morning. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word this morning. Begin at verse 18. This is the Word of the Lord. 
Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, weak and frail, trembling before you. But we don't come in fear alone, Lord. We come knowing that you are able to save. You are able to bring comfort and lasting peace in a world that hates you and in a world that hates your people. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would strengthen us now as we come to your word. You would help us to see truly what is going on, the the spiritual realities of this fallen world and the difficulties that we will face in it. But we pray, Lord, that we would not be led to despair and doubt and fear, but that we would be strengthened this morning and that we would have great confidence, not in and of ourselves, but in you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. On October 16th, 1555, two Reformed Protestants, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were burned alive at the stake under the reign of Queen Mary I, put to a miserable, horrible, an excruciating death by being burned alive. You might ask, why were these two men burned alive? Why did they suffer this terrible, excruciating death just 40-so years after the Reformation began? What were their crimes that deserved this punishment? Preaching and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Teaching against the Roman Catholic Mass and bearing witness to 
the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were bearing witness to the truth of the gospel of Christ, and for that, they were hated and persecuted by the world. And as they were being executed for their faith, Latimer turned to Ridley and said these famous words, Be courageous, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace as I trust shall never be put out. (laughs) Even in their death, these men recognized the hope that they had that was outside of this world. They recognized the call upon them to bear witness to the truth, even if it meant their own agonizing death. Now, this story of martyrdom over 500 years ago is one among many that happened during the Reformation and throughout church history. People being put to, gr- put to death for holding to the faith, this story of the world's hatred towards Christ's people, a picture of of what we see in John 15, and ultimately a fulfillment of our Lord's words that we read today. Because if what we saw last time in John's gospel was how the enemies of God are made into friends of Christ, what we're going to see this morning is how the friends of Christ are made enemies of the world. Hated and persecuted by the unbelieving world, but the hope that we see also is that we will not be ultimately overcome. And so we're going to look at three different things this morning. We're going to see first in verses 18 through 20, the hatred of the world defined, the hatred of the world defined, In verses 21 through 25, we'll see the hatred of the world explained, and then finally we'll see the hatred of the world overcome. Firstly, we see in verse 18, our Lord is seeking to prepare His disciples for what is ahead of them, for what is to come. And He speaks these words to them to comfort them in their distress and point them to the true reality that is ahead. Jesus here reveals to them the true relationship between His kingdom, the kingdom of Christ, and the kingdom of Satan and the devil. The difference between Christ and His people, the church, and this fallen and unbelieving world. The contrast between the kingdom of darkness and the light of the world. And he shows his disciples the true condition of this fallen world and their disposition toward God and his people. And what we see is that it is not one of love and acceptance, but hatred and persecution. Jesus says in verse 18 that the world will hate Christ's people because it first hated him. He says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me. Jesus here reveals this underlying reality, the truth of what is going on in the world around us, that instead of the world coming to the light and being saved by the light, the world hates the light and all those who are in the light. 
We read this this morning in John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. The world hates God and His people. And the world here is referring to all those who are of the world, all those who are devoted to the world and the things of the world, under the influence of Satan, dead in their trespasses and sins, and as Ephesians says, following the course of this world and the power of darkness. But it's fascinating because what we see is not only does the world love the darkness, we see in John 3 that it hates the light. It wants to snuff out and extinguish the light. That this is a sense of enmity and hatred and hostility that the darkness has toward the light. And we see in John 3 why this is so. Because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The reason the world hates the light is because the light exposes evil and wickedness. The light reveals the sin and the true condition of the surrounding unbelieving world. The light makes exclusive claims to the truth and the way of salvation. And the world hates this. The world hates this. The world hates Christ and his people. The world hates the gospel. But in one sense, this shouldn't be shocking to us, right? Because in the third chapter of Holy Scripture, we see the promise that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In Genesis 3.15, God promises that he will put enmity between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. So in one sense, this is not new. (laughs) This enmity between God and his people and the unbelieving fallen world is not new. But we see that this hatred of God and his people is not always as evident or apparent as we might think. I mean, hatred is a very strong world. Jesus says the world hates you. And we can be tempted to think, well, the world doesn't seem that, you know, animosity toward God's people. It doesn't seem like it has that much animosity toward God and against his people. This hatred is not always evident and apparent. And in fact, on the surface, most people seem pretty fine with Jesus and with his church, right? You've heard people say, well, he's a good moral teacher. The church does good things for the community. People on the surface don't appear to have a big problem with Christ and with his people. How can Jesus say the world hates you? But we see it's not until this underlying reality is revealed that the world's radical rejection of Christ is made apparent. That's what we've seen in the Gospel of John, right? If you remember all the way back in the early part of Jesus' ministry, the people were happy with Jesus. (laughs) They loved Jesus. He multiplied bread. He did miracles for them. He fed their stomachs. They would say, we love Jesus. We don't hate him. What are you talking about? It wasn't until Jesus said, repent and believe, showing them their need to confess their sin, that they became 
hating of him. It wasn't until Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, making an exclusive claim to divinity that they picked up stones to stone him. It wasn't until Jesus said, I am the light of the world, pointing to himself as the only way of salvation that they wanted to arrest and put him to death. And it's the same thing in our day. Many people appear to love Christianity, to love the church, until the light of the gospel exposes their sin before God. And that's why Jesus can say in verse 19 such a profound statement. He's speaking to the disciples. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. He makes a profound statement. He, he says, if you were of the world, if you loved the world and the things of the world, then the world would love you. The world would not hate you. In other words, he's saying the world loves its own. Darkness loves darkness. John Gill said this, the people of the world love each other's company. (laughs) The people of the world love each other's company. Darkness loves darkness. (laughs) Because darkness doesn't expose darkness. The world loves its own and the company of its own. But Jesus says to them, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus is giving them the reason for this hatred, that because Christ has called and chosen his people, uniting them to himself, the true vine, transferring them out of this world by his work of salvation, this is what causes the world to hate them and persecute them. That to be a friend of Christ is to be at enmity with the world. And that's why Jesus says in verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If the world persecuted Christ, who was perfect, how much more will they persecute his people and his church? But the question that we need to ask ourselves is why? Why such animosity? Why such stark hatred of God and his people? Why are these things so? And that leads us to our second point this morning, the hatred of the world explained. That we have to ask ourselves this fundamental question this morning. Why does the world hate believers? Why does the world want to persecute Christ and his church? Why does the unbelieving world respond to the message of the gospel of grace with anger and hatred? Why do people respond to the message of mercy and forgiveness with hostility? And the answer we've already said this morning is because they hate the light. That by the very nature of light itself, it exposes and reveals the darkness and sin of this world. (laughs) If you think about it, the nature of light, the property of light, It can't help but expose the darkness. (laughs) Light, by its very nature, does this. It cannot do anything less. Light 
cannot help but expose the darkness. The message of the gospel can't help but expose the sin of the world. To put it kind of tritely, the message of good news begins first with bad news. (laughs) That you're a sinner. That you are guilty before God. And the world hates this message. The world hates this message. That the darkness hates the message of mercy and forgiveness and grace because that would mean admitting that it is sinful and that it is guilty before a holy God. Guilty before the righteous judge. And it's so helpful that we see this in John chapter 3 as well because we can be confused on this sometimes. I think we can think that the reason that the darkness hates the light is because maybe the darkness just hasn't seen the light or maybe the darkness doesn't know the light yet. But we see that the reason the darkness hates the light is precisely because it has seen the light and yet hates it. Jesus reveals in verse 21 the underlying reason that the world will hate and persecute God's people, and he says it's because they do not know God. They do not know God truly. He says in verse 21, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. That while we can say, in a sense, that everyone knows there is a God, the world does not know God truly and savingly. This is the ultimate reason for their rejection of the light and the hatred that God's people will experience. And we see in verse 22 a very interesting statement. We see that the greater the light shines, the greater the guilt and condemnation that not only have the Jewish people of Christ's day had the light of nature convicting them of their sin and their own consciences, not only have they had the light of the Old Testament revealing their sin and pointing them to their need for a Savior, but they've had Christ, the light of the world, exposing their sin and guilt and condemnation. And what Jesus is saying is to reject this light, to reject this revelation, is to render you guilty to the highest degree. And we can be kind of confused by what verse 22 says because it makes it sound like Jesus is saying, oh, if I didn't come to them, then they wouldn't wouldn't have any sin. Jesus here is not saying that if he had not come to the people that they would be sinless, but compared to their guilt now, they would appear as if they were sinless and innocent because the light of Christ has shone on them and they've rejected even the brightest light. And so we can say the greater the light shines, the greater the guilt and condemnation. And Jesus says these very piercing words in verse 22. He says, and therefore they have no excuse. They have no excuse reminds us of what we see in places like Romans 1 where Paul says that the world is without excuse because even though they know God, they do not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. That no one in the whole universe can say, I have an excuse for not believing in God. All are condemned by the light of nature and their rejection of the one true God. And so the problem isn't that people don't know that God exists. The problem is that people know God and hate Him. 
people know Christ and his message of forgiveness and reject it. And Jesus reveals this hatred of him is ultimately a hatred of the Father also. He says in verse 23, whoever hates me hates my Father also. That to reject the Son is to reject the Father. This is the nature of God. Triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as someone who rejects the Son but loves the Father. To reject the Son is to reject the Father. To hate the Son is to hate the Father. There's no dividing up the Trinity. Well, I love God. I love the Father, but I've rejected Christ. He's not the Messiah. Jesus clearly says, no, whoever hates me hates my Father also. And this hatred we see is what will ultimately lead to not only Christ's coming death on the cross, His brutal crucifixion, His death without a cause, but we also see it's what leads to the persecution of His disciples and the world hating and persecuting them. I'm reminded of the great book by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. And partway through that book, we read of Christian who's on his journey to the celestial city. He's accompanied by his friend, faithful, and they're walking through this town called Vanity, where this town is full of worldliness. And there's a fair in the town called Vanity Fair. And this fair is always running, it never ceases, and it's a picture of this world, how this world dresses up sin and makes it appear alluring and desirable. And we see in the story that Christian and faithful, as they walk through this town on their way to the celestial city, they're hated and persecuted by those in the fair. They don't speak any ill word of anyone, they don't hate and mock the people, They simply say they want to buy the truth. And they're imprisoned and beat and faithful is eventually killed for this. And we see the same thing in these words of our Lord, that the the world sees that we are not of the world. The world doesn't even have to be told that we are not of this world. The world sees that we don't partake in the works of darkness, that we want the truth rather than a lie, And so they hate and persecute God's people. But we see the ultimate promise in our final verses that this darkness that feels so overwhelming, this doom that seems pending, will not be able to extinguish the light of Christ. And that leads us to our third point this morning, the hatred of the world overcome. The hatred of the world overcome. That even though the world will hate Christ and hate His people, persecuting them, this hostility that we will all face in this life, it will not stop the gospel of Christ from going forth in this dark and dying world. That we can say it like this, that the darkness will not snuff out the light. 
No matter how hard the world tries to silence Christ and his people, no matter how much Satan seeks to snuff out the light, we see the promise in these verses that the message will go forth. The light of the gospel will shine. Or to say it in the words of John's prologue, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And that's what we see Jesus promise in verse 26 and 27. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, He will bear witness about Me. And you also will bear witness that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the the, the third person of the triune God who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son will indeed bear witness about Christ, His death and His resurrection. The Spirit will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. The Spirit will take hard hearts of stone and turn them to flesh. But not only that, we see in our passage that the Spirit will empower this proclamation of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. These very disciples who have been with Christ from the beginning will bear witness to Christ. We read about this in the book of Acts. Acts 1 verse 7 says, you will be my witnesses that the world will hear this message beginning in Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That us in this very room are evidence of the fulfillment of these words. But what we need to think about this morning and what's so amazing and yet sobering about this is that all of this happens not in spite of the hatred of the world, but in the face of hatred, persecution, and death. Church history tells us that, in fact, all of the apostles, except for John, will go on to be killed and martyred for professing this message. Murdered for preaching the gospel of Christ. Put to agonizing death. Crucified, beheaded, stoned, beaten, whipped and flogged, the disciples will suffer this agonizing death and pain, this hatred and animosity of the world, and all because of their faith in Christ, all because of their love for Him and their union with Him, all because they are not of this world." This, brothers and sisters, is the hatred of the world. This is the darkness trying to snuff out the light. This is Satan and his kingdom seeking to extinguish God's people. And if we're honest, when we hear stories like this, or any stories, right? Hear about people being burned alive for their faith, killed and murdered for professing Christ, it can cause us to fear. It can cause us to be afraid. Will I lose my faith in the face of persecution? Will I shrink back in the face of the hatred of this world? And the truth is, if it is up to our ability and our strength to persevere in the face of hatred and persecution, 
then we are lost. We are lost. But our Savior does not leave us to our own devices. He comes to us and He speaks to us this message of hope. And He says to His disciples at the end of the next chapter, John 16, verse 33, He tells the disciples why He's saying these things. Why is Jesus speaking about this hatred of the world? Why is He telling them about the persecution and death that they're about to face? He says, I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Christ is the one who overcomes the world. Christ is the one that has already overcome the world. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent. The light of the gospel will go forth. Christ has overcome the world for His people in His death and in His resurrection, not only saving us out of the world and making us His dear friends, uniting us to Himself and preserving us from unbelief, but He has saved us from all of our spiritual enemies and He will bring us to His heavenly kingdom. Christ will do this. He is the one that has overcome the world and us by our faith in Him. And so as we step back from this passage this morning, there's three things that we need to consider and contemplate by way of application. And the first one is this. Brothers and sisters, we need to count the cost of following Christ. We need to count the cost of following Christ. We need to consider the weight of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. And just as we are called to serve one another for the sake of Christ, we see in this passage we are also called to suffer and be hated for the sake of Christ. That if Christ has served us and suffered for us, how are we to think that we will be exempt from these same things? And this is not an easy word for us this morning, but it's a necessary word, right? It's not easy because the world loves to sell Christianity as cheap and easy and costing nothing. The world loves to sell Christianity as cheap and easy, costing nothing. No suffering, no persecution, no calling out of sin, that being a Christian won't actually cost you anything. You won't be hated by the world. You won't suffer persecution. The world will actually love you. The world will actually care about you and the things of this world. And sadly, this sort of thinking has crept into many churches in our day in the form of easy believism, seeking to be like the world so that the world will love them, entertaining instead of preaching the gospel, afraid to call out sin for fear of the persecution of the world. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 14 to count the cost of following him. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife 
and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which one of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple." that we need to count the cost this morning, brothers and sisters, that our love for God and Christ must come before all our worldly allegiances and all of our earthly relationships. Jesus in this passage is not canceling the second great commandment to love our neighbor. He's showing its subordination to the first great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we shouldn't be naive, right? Following Christ will cost us. We see in our passage that the world will hate us because we are in Christ. But our fear must be first and foremost to God before our fear of men. And we must count the cost of following Him. One pastor said it like this, The cost of following Christ in our world is increasing, but the cost of being ashamed of Him is exceedingly greater. Right? The cost of following Christ in our world is definitely increasing, but the cost of being ashamed of him is exceedingly greater. And I think this is so hard for us because we can be tempted to think that when things are hard, when the world hates us, it's because we're doing something wrong. (laughs) Like, oh, if I just did this thing better, then the world wouldn't hate me. If I just did this or that, if I didn't say this or that, then the world wouldn't hate me so much. And Jesus is telling us in John 15, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. It's actually because you are not of this world that the world will hate God's people. It is actually when we are following Christ and keeping his commandments that the world will hate us the most. And this is why Peter can say in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening. <laughs> That's hard for us, right? When we're suffering, when we're hated in this world, Peter's saying, don't be surprised by that. Don't be surprised. He says, but rather rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is the hope we have in Christ that we should not be surprised by our trials, but we should rejoice even as the world hates and mocks those that trust in Christ. But the second thing we need to see this morning is we need to see the Lord's sovereign person purpose in the persecution of the world. The Lord's sovereign purposes in the persecution of the world. That we can make no mistake, as we've seen in our passage, the world will indeed hate God's people. The world will hate all those who are in Christ. But as we also see, it is in the face of this hatred and persecution that the light of the gospel will shine most brightly and the word will increase and multiply. 
and both Scripture and church history show us this, right? That persecution ultimately leads to the gospel going forth. The hatred of the world leads to the spread of the good news. And we see this even in Holy Scripture. Go to the next book, the book of Acts. The, the apostles are bearing witness. They're doing what Jesus said they would do. They're bearing witness about Christ, and they suffer persecution. They suffer hatred, and they su- suffer imprisonment. And what do we see repeated throughout the book of Acts? The word of the Lord increased. The word of the Lord multiplied, and disciples were grown. And we see this not only in Scripture, but church history tells us the same thing. Whether it's the persecution of the Romans in the early church, the persecution of believers during the Reformation, that all of this is what causes the light of the gospel to shine and spread most brightly. Tertullian said in these famous words, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church that... The persecution of the church by Satan is like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing it into the wind. It only seeks to spread and multiply. It's like trying to put out a fire by kicking the embers around. It only spreads the flame. And so we see, ultimately, even in the persecution and hatred of the world, our Lord's sovereign purposes, even in our suffering, It's as if Jesus is saying this, the world will hate you. (laughs) The world will hate you. The world will persecute you. But look to me. I suffered first. I suffered for you. Have hope and trust my sovereign purposes. And we also see in Scripture that this, this endurance under suffering is actually a mark of a healthy and mature church. I was reading this week in 2 Thessalonians And in the first chapter, Paul is greeting this church and he's telling them why he's so thankful for this church. And he tells them three things. And we see these same three things, I think, modeled in John 15. Because he commends the church because they're growing in their faith in Christ. They're united to the true vine and they're growing in their faith in Him. He commends the church for growing in their love for one another, as we spoke about in verses 12 through 17. And then he commends the church for this, that they are patiently enduring persecution. And he says, I'm telling other churches about your patient endurance, even in the face of persecution and suffering, that the afflictions that a church suffers are to strengthen and mature the church. And it's actually a mark and sign of a healthy and mature church that can go under sufferings and persecution and remain steadfast and faithful to God. But we see thirdly and finally that not only do we need to count the cost of following Christ, not only do we need to see our Lord's sovereign purposes in the persecution of the world, but we see lastly and finally that as believers, we need to look to Christ. Because the truth is, as we've already said, in and of ourselves, we are weak. In and of ourselves, brothers and sisters, we are very weak. We need to admit this. (laughs) By nature, we are all people pleasers. 
By nature, we will be tempted to follow after this world, seeking our own comfort, tempted to please men over God. But Jesus comes to us and he says, look to me. I have suffered for you. I have transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness. I have chosen you out of this world. Look to me. And so we can take comfort this morning knowing that we are not alone in our suffering. Not only because Christ has given us His Spirit to empower and strengthen His people to endure persecution, but we can take comfort knowing that Christ suffered first. That the world hated Him before it hated us. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we are hated and mocked as a church. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer persecution from this world as God's people because we have the promise that Christ will overcome and that by faith in Him, we too can overcome the world. That's what we read this morning in 1 John 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. By faith, we are looking to the world to come, the celestial city. By faith, we are relying on the Spirit to empower us. By faith, we are looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. By faith, we are following Christ, even in the face of the hatred and persecution of the unbelieving world. And when we go to the last book of the Bible, written by the same author, the Apostle John, in Revelation 12, we see this cosmic picture of the heavenly realities. We see a cosmic picture of the persecution of the church, a heavenly picture of the world's hatred against Christ and his disciples, the invisible realities behind Satan's war against God's people. And if you turn to Revelation 12, you see that Satan as pictured as this great red dragon who is making war against the people of God, the seed of the woman, those who keep the commandments of Christ and his testimony, red with anger and fury and hatred of Christ and his people, wanting to divide and destroy the people of God. But we see in Revelation 12, verse 11, the great promise that God's people will overcome. They will conquer the persecution of the dragon, not by their own strength, not by their own ability, but as John says, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony because they loved not their lives even unto death. <laughs> that even though we will face persecution and suffering in this world, we can trust that we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. 
always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As Samuel Rutherford said, our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first welcome home into heaven. (laughs) Our little time of suffering is not worthy of our first welcome home to heaven. And I'll close this morning with these words from Pilgrim's Progress. This is the words of Christian after his friend had just been martyred and killed and put to death, and he speaks these words looking to the hope of heaven. He says, Well, faithful, you have been faithfully, you have faithfully professed unto our Lord with whom you shall be blessed. When faithless, faithless ones with all their vain delights are crying out under their hellish plights. Sing, faithful, sing, and let your name survive. For though they killed you, you are yet alive. We don't have to fear death and persecution, brothers and sisters. We don't have to fear the hatred of this world. We can trust that God will save his people and that even our death is life. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ, that we who used to be enemies of you, part of this world, and following the course of this world, doomed for destruction and death, eternal punishment for our sins, yet you saved us, you called us and chose us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And now you call us friends, where we were before only enemies. But we see, Lord, that this friendship with you will bring hatred from this world. And we pray this morning, Lord, that we would not be surprised by the suffering and persecution that we face in this life, that we would not fear men, but that we would fear you, And that we would know that if we are in Christ this morning, we will overcome because he has overcome. And if we are washed in the blood of the lamb, we have hope this morning. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come to the supper, that as we are reminded of what it took for us to be washed and cleansed of our sin, that we would have great hope this morning, that we would look to heaven, that even though we will suffer in this life, We know that there's a day coming where there'll be no tears and no mourning. And so we look forward to that even now. And we pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen.